This morning we're turning the Gospel of John to chapter 2. Some of you will know that over the past Friday and Saturday, our elders had a retreat in which we do some reflection on the past and then make some plans for the future. And one of the things that the brothers said, and it was a good thing, I was very thankful for it, they said, sometimes it's really helpful for you before you begin the sermon to give us some guidance about how we're supposed to listen. (laughs) So I'm going to try to do that in just a few seconds. And this morning, what I'd really encourage you to do, whether you are one of the youngest people here and can barely understand what I'm saying, or one of our older saints who has many years of experience in walking with the Lord, what I'd ask you to do is the simple thing that Paul commends the Bereans for doing in the book of Acts. And that is, listen to the words I'm about to say and compare them to the Scriptures themselves. I'm not interested in impressing you with the way in which I'm going to present this. I don't want you to be flattered by the words I'm about to say. What I want you to hear is the words of your Savior to you, each one of you. And the way in which you'll be sure that's being done is if you compare my words with the words of Scripture. So please do that as we read first these words from John chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. These are the words of God. We actually begin reading at verse 12. It says, After this he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of our God. Sometimes when you have to break difficult news to people, it's best just to say it. So here you go. Jesus does not believe in you. He doesn't. Maybe that sounds rather stark, and it's even difficult to say. And so I want to spend some considerable time this morning telling you why that is true. And it's part of the reason I encouraged you when I began this sermon to compare what I am saying 
the words of Scripture. Because saying that to you, Jesus does not believe in you, may strike you immediately as not only harsh, but also potentially as wrong. So I want to explain that to you because it requires a significant amount of explanation and perhaps nuance by telling you three things about that truth. It is not that we believe that we need Jesus to believe in in us. That's not what we need. Our fundamental need is not Jesus to believe in us. It is rather, according to these verses, that we need to believe in Jesus. That's a fundamental turn. The first thing I want to tell you about that truth is that it is impossible for me to explain to you what Jesus means in verse 24 of this passage, where it says, Jesus and his part did not entrust himself to them without at first explaining to you what it means in verse 23, where it says, many believed in his name. So I'm going to talk to you first about what it meant for them and what it means for us to believe in the name of Jesus. What is the reason they believed? And why is that the emphasis not only in this passage in verse 23, but also in everything that we have learned so far from the book of John? And really, if I can be honest, it is the emphasis of the book of John in its entirety. Why do you believe in Jesus? Is there good reason to do so? The second thing we need to think about, if I am to convince you that we don't need Jesus to believe in us, but rather we need to believe in Him is the contrast between the trust that we have in Jesus and then what it means for him not to entrust himself to us. If the first thing I want to tell you is why you can trust him, the second thing I need to tell you is why he cannot trust you. And then the third thing I want to tell you is why this contrast between the trust that we are called to have in Jesus and Him not trusting us is actually, here's the big surprise, good news. So let me begin, as I said, with the trust that we should have in Jesus. You can see this very clearly from verse 23, where John says, And when, they saw, and when he was in Jerusalem in the Passover feast, many believed in His name when they saw the signs that He was doing. Now, maybe the part of this passage that really captured your attention was the first part where Jesus appears to be very angry and he goes into the temple and drives out those who are buying and selling in the temple courts. If I can explain that very quickly to you, the place in which the buying and the selling was happening was in the outer court where only the Gentiles were allowed to go. They were not allowed to go any further than that. And the religious leaders, with complete disregard for how their buying and selling in the temple would affect those Gentiles who were coming to worship, Jesus, in righteous indignation, is telling the Jews the gospel is not only for those who are Jews, already believers, the gospel is for Gentiles and for those who do not yet hear. That is his righteous indignation. The same kind of indignation we should have when we think to ourselves, the gospel is good for me, and I don't really care whether others hear it. That's really not important. But I'm drawing your attention this morning not to that story. I'm going to tell you a bit about it in a moment. I'm really drawing your attention to what I would say is really the summary statement for the first two chapters in the book of John. 
The writer is reflecting on what has just happened in Jerusalem, but really he's reflecting on the entirety of the first two chapters. The grand introduction to the book of John. John that began in chapter 1 with these words in verses 11 through 13. It says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, these key words, and who believed in his name... He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Later on, near the end of John, John notes that he writes these things so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ. From the beginning of John to the end of John, John writes, my point to you is this, it's a very simple point, I'm writing to you to convince you that Jesus is the Christ and you should believe in him. You should put your trust in him. That's the point. I want to note two things about these words from John chapter 1 that will help you understand what it means for you to believe or to put your trust in Jesus. The first thing that John notes in John chapter 1 in these verses I read from verses 11 through 13 is that the question of whether or not you should give yourself to Jesus, to trust in Him, to entrust yourself to Him, to rest and rely upon Him alone is according to the Gospel of John and really according to the Scriptures, the critical question for humanity. Could I make it sound any bigger than that? It really is the biggest question any person will face in this life. It is not the question of where you're going to live or what job you're going to have or whether you're going to get married or how much you're going to have for retirement. The critical question that each one of us will face in this life is the question being posed by the Gospel of John from the beginning to the end and highlighted here at the end of chapter 2. Will you entrust yourself to Jesus? Will you rest and rely upon Him? Will you live your life in response to our Savior? The second thing you should hear from the introduction of John in John verses 1, John chapter 1 verses 11 through 13 is this. Not only is it the critical question that each one of us needs to answer, the second thing that you must hear is that believing in Jesus Christ is difficult. I would never say to you it's an easy thing, just go ahead and do it. Just follow these words I'm about to pray. And once you've prayed them, it's done. No big deal. Know what John says in John chapter 1, specifically verse 13, is that those who believe in Jesus Christ were not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they are born of God. If I can put it this way, believing in Jesus Christ is so difficult, it takes a supernatural a divine work in order for you to believe. It is not only the question of our existence, it is also the calling to something that is impossible without the help of God. And so John begins with those words in John chapter 1, and in chapter 2, after Jesus cleanses the temple... It becomes apparent, according to verse 23 of chapter 2, that many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Notice at this point, the gospel writer connects belief in Jesus Christ with the reason to believe. 
Again, if I can emphasize what the gospel does, the gospel does not simply say to you, my friend, believe in Jesus Christ. All sorts of people make religious choices. You make one too. If you happen to like Jesus, go ahead, trust in him. If others would rather believe in Buddha, for example, or they'd rather believe in Allah, or they'd rather have no God at all, it's all the same. You just make your own religious choice. Just believe in the one that makes sense to you. No, John emphasizes over and over, Jesus is not one option on the, on the buffet of religious choices. He says, when you really see who Jesus is, if you're listening closely to what I'm saying, you will come to the inevitable conclusion with the help of God, there is no one to believe in but Jesus. You may have not have noticed as we talk through the first two chapters of this book, But John has been working hard to give you reasons to believe. In John chapter 1, in verses 47 through 50, Jesus tells Nathanael he saw where Nathanael was sitting under a fig tree before he was called. And Nathanael is so impressed by Jesus' supernatural ability to see things no human can that he believes. In John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, Jesus turns water, ordinary water, into wine. This is impossible to do, of course, apart from supernatural power. And verse 11 says, after he did that, his disciples, the ones he had just called, believed in his name. They looked to Jesus, saw who he was, contemplated the reality of what he claimed to be, and they believed. And even this story that I just read from verses 13 through 22 of John 2, Jesus goes to Jerusalem with his disciples to the Passover. Jesus is filled with a zeal for the people, the way the people were treating the presence of God among them. Thinking only of worship as something for themselves, a way to exalt their own sense of religious pride with no regard For those who did not know, who are attempting to come to the worship of God. And that passion for the mission of God in this world, that those who are lost would be found, and is so exemplified in that passage. Verse 22 says, Therefore, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what he had said. And they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. The disciples believed when they saw the connection between what Jesus did, what mattered to him, what he was after, and what the scriptures said about him. Jesus did not just appear in human history. No, there were many prophecies over many years from many different writers that are all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And that testimony of the Scriptures was convincing to his disciples. So if you put all three of these together, this is what you arrive at in terms of faith. People saw what Jesus did. They were convinced by the Word and the Spirit that these works said something fundamental fundamental about Jesus. That there was no one like Jesus. There was no one who could be like Jesus. And therefore, it was inevitable there was no other choice but to believe in Jesus. Let me pause for just a moment and add something that verse 23 says. 
where it says, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Please, when you hear that, do not think to yourself, these are just the supernatural signs that Jesus did. The author's referring to all the things that people witnessed about Jesus, his claims about himself, the teaching the teaching that Jesus spoke, as well as the miracles and the signs. If I can just summarize it this way, if you're here this morning, whether you've been here many times or this is your first time, and you're thinking to yourself, why should I believe in Jesus? I have a simple answer for you. Find out who he is. And as you find out about the character, the nature, the work of Jesus, I believe you'll also come to the same conclusion that the disciples and the crowds did. That is, this Jesus that John is talking about is worthy of your trust. He is one you can rest and rely on. While it is true, as I said just a moment ago, it's impossible to believe in Jesus apart from the Spirit's work. The truth, my friend, is that real faith, real faith and belief belief in Jesus Christ is a belief in who he actually is and what he has done. You do not worship a God who speaks in John about a hope and a wish and a dream. It's not like me talking about the twins. Maybe next year they can make it to the World Series. Or if you're a college football fan, maybe next week my Hawkeyes can score a touchdown. That's a wish and a dream. It's a hope. To have faith that will happen is nothing more than a synonym for a desire, a hope. But the faith that is found in Scripture is not just a wish or a hope. It is rooted and founded in the reality of who Jesus is. That Jesus was actually a person who lived, who did these things, who spoke these things, who died on the cross, who rose again and is ascended and ruling from the right hand of God. Or to put it this way, if I need to challenge your mind in this way, there is no difference between the truth that tells us summer turns into fall in the great state of Michigan and the trees outside are blazing beautiful with the reds and the yellows and with the oranges. There's no difference between that truth, the reality you observe, and the truth that Jesus Christ is worthy of your trust. There is only one truth, and John works hard, and I am trying to do the same this morning to make this point to you super clear. You should put your confidence in Jesus. He is worthy and capable of bearing that trust. He will not fail you. He will not turn out to be something else. He will not deceive you. No, the Jesus who is found in Scripture is the Jesus, again, who can bear your trust. You may be in a position this morning where people have failed you repeatedly. Over and over and over again, people have failed you. But I want you to hear with the clarity of the Spirit and everything that is in my heart and my voice this morning. You can believe in Jesus. Please, go ahead and believe. Because the Jesus of which I speak is a Jesus who is capable of bearing your trust. That's verse 23. That's faith in Jesus. The faith that you were called to this morning. That's the first thing I want to tell you. We don't need Jesus to believe in us. We need to believe in Jesus. But now here's the second thing. 
And here's the difficult thing. Jesus does not trust us. And I'm taking these words directly from verse 24. And here's where I encourage you at the beginning of the sermon to have your Bibles open. Because it says in verse 24, But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about, it, about, about man, for he himself knew what was in man. The majority of this summary statement to the first two chapters of John is a contrast between the faith that we are called to have in Jesus Christ and the good reason why that faith should be placed in Jesus, and then why Jesus did not entrust himself to man, or to put it in the contrast that is so explicit in the original, there is a contrast directly in the original that's a little harder to spot here. The first phrase, and they believed in him at the end of verse 23, is inset right next to the phrase in verse 24, and he did not believe in them. The contrast is intentional. So in that contrast, what does it mean with that strong statement that Jesus did not believe in them? The first thing I want to tell you about that statement is that it is obvious that Jesus did not believe in them in the same way that they believed in him. The crowds are convinced By the signs that Jesus did and the power of the Spirit, that Jesus saw their hearts, that Jesus was a powerful and compelling teacher of the Word, that the Scriptures testified to His coming. All of that was true. But now Jesus looks at their hearts, and what He sees is not power and strength, it is not consistency and reliability. It is not faithfulness to the word of God. No, he saw in the hearts of even those who believed in him, not steadiness and reliability, but something far less. Again, let me explain the difference. When we believe in Jesus, we do so because we come to understand the greatness of who he is. We know he is able to bear our trust. But for Jesus to put his confidence in us would be in people who are not capable of bearing that trust. Is that not true? Are you capable of bearing the trust of Jesus? I mean that in the ultimate sense. To use a quote from one of my favorite books, The Speed of Trust by Daniel Goleman, he says, all human trust is made up of two things, character and competence. Let me ask you this morning, do you have the character for Jesus to believe in you and do you have the competence in what you do that he ought to put his faith in you? I'm going to use a silly illustration. It's occasioned by the fact, I guess it's not that silly, That if you were here this week, you would have seen the beautiful stonework. In front of that was scaffolding. Yellow scaffolding, it's what they use as they laid the brick up. I remember a time when I was working construction where we had a large, large job to do. And ordinarily there there are 
planks that are prefabricated to lay in the scaffolding that are strong and secure. We ran out of the planks. So one of my coworkers, a young man, said, we're pretty light. Let's just lay a couple of two-by-sixes across the scaffolding and walk on that. He said in his mind, two two-by-sixes laid next to each other is the same width as a two-by-twelve. <laughs> you can laugh if you want to. He walked out in the middle of that scaffolding on those two-by-sixes laid next to each other and nearly fell down. It was only him grabbing onto the scaffolding that kept him from falling to the ground and hurting himself rather seriously. In his mind, he had convinced himself that he knew well enough that he could put his confidence not just in two-by-sixes, but his faulty reasoning. How many times in your life have you done something like that? You have convinced yourself that you know exactly what you ought to do, what's going to work out just right, only later to hear the crack of the wood below your feet and suffer the pain of falling to the ground. If you think to yourself this morning, hey, that's me. (laughs) You didn't raise your hand. I'm not asking you to. But I will tell you, you're in great company. I've done that many times. Over this past week, I've done that. And if the strength of my faith was based on the ability of Jesus to trust in me, I would testify to you as loudly as I could this morning. There is not enough there. There isn't. The reasons for that come in verses 24 and 25. And there are in verses 24 and 25, if you just look it over in the English translation, three phrases stacked on top of each other. And although these are complementary phrases, each has its own importance, and they tell us two important things. What are the two reasons why Jesus cannot trust in you? First, it says in verse 24, he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. To put it very simply, Jesus knew their failures. He could see them. Our Savior's no fool. He was continually experiencing the lack of reliability that existed in the human heart. Read the rest of the book of John. Even his disciples, the ones most committed to following him, they failed him over and over. They didn't understand what he was going to do. In the moment of his greatest crisis as he is headed to the cross, where his disciples, his faithful disciples, the ones who said, we will go with you even to death. Where where are his disciples? They're running away in fear. They're not there steady and reliable. And not only is that true of humanity in general, here's what's even worse. We think to ourselves that we can hide that. We can cover it up. We can act as though those things are not true. We give other people the impression that we're pretty good people who can be counted on. I'm your kind of guy. The one you really need. And here's the stark reality this morning. Jesus knows better. You are not pretty reliable. You are one who's weak and who fails often. Jesus 
is considering who he can entrust himself to, who will be with me to the end, who is capable of bearing that trust. I can't help but tell you the first funeral I ever conducted when I was a pastor was an old woman in an elderly congregation in a rural community. I'd only been there a couple of years, but I'd gotten to know her well. I visited her every Thursday, and every time I came, she had prepared for me a scripture meditation to share with me. I thought that's not what they said in seminary was going to happen, but I was impressed. She exuded godliness in my mind. She was the kind of person I thought, I want to be like her when I get older. And I remember just a few weeks before her death, she had a disease she knew was going to take her. And she could see it getting closer. And she said one time when I came to visit her on that Thursday, she said, Pastor, I want to talk about what's going to happen when I'm dead and, at, and you're at my funeral. She said, here's the number one thing I want you to do. I don't care what songs you sing. I don't care what passage you talk from. I don't care how many people are there. None of that matters at all to me. Do whatever you want. There's one thing that matters most. Do you dare not, do not tell people how faithful I was. Do not give people a sense that I was a wonderful woman who had everything together And Jesus would have been grateful to receive me into his kingdom. You tell people Jesus is the one to be trusted. Not me. And I hope this morning you know from the conviction of your own heart and the observation of your life that that's absolutely true. That's the first reason This passage says he could not entrust himself to them. He knows our failures. The second thing it says in verse 25 is he also knows our natures. Not only is it an occasional failure, but he knew into the heart of man. Jesus knew that he could not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man. For here it is, he knew what was in the heart of man. That's not just failure every once in a while. The language indicates he knows your heart. He knows what's at the core of you. It is not just that you fail occasionally. No, the nature of humanity is not only are we mortal, but after the fall, we're also sinners. That's affected our nature. There's going to be no perfection on this side of the grave, even for those who are believers in Jesus Christ. One of the most beautiful things I think about the Scriptures is that even those who would be commended in Hebrews chapter 11, you might say the heroes of the faith, in other places in the Scriptures, their unreliability is highlighted. Think of Abram called from the Ur of the Chaldees, hears the voice of God, and he abandons everything to follow after God. He travels many, many miles And then when the king asks a simple question, is this your wife? He's like, yeah, I don't know. Sister, maybe. Think of David, the man after God's own hearts, walking up on the top of his palace, looking down and seeing a woman bathing. Instead of diverting his eyes, he thought, oh, here we go. Over and over in the Scriptures, What we're given 
with our brothers and sisters whose lives are recorded is a record not of perfection, of people who can be relied upon, but of people who by nature are those who need something beside themselves. And that's what I'm telling you this morning. That even the faith of Abraham and the Savior of the Scriptures was not confidence in himself. It wasn't someone else. I want to give you one important nuance about what I'm saying in the second point. Jesus does not trust you. What I am not saying, and hear this very clearly, is that Jesus does not entrust us with real responsibilities. He does. You're a husband, a father, you're a mother, you're a parent, you're a worker, you're a citizen. Those are real responsibilities. God gives them to us. And he wants us to be faithful stewards of those things. This is no sermon that tells you you have permission to not care about what God has given you. That's not what I'm talking about. This is not meant to be licentious. Just go ahead and sin then like it doesn't matter. If that's what you think this sermon is, you haven't heard what I've been saying. That's not the point. It is not... That we are not called to serve Jesus Christ faithfully. We are called to do that. But that is not the same as Jesus trusting you. That is, and hear this clearly, Jesus believing in order for you to be a faithful child of God, for Him to work through you, You have everything sufficient in yourself. That's what I mean when I say Jesus does not trust you. Jesus does not trust you alone, absent the power of Jesus. Jesus knows your failures, He knows your character. And he does not believe that at any point in this life you will ever get to a point where you do not need him. That's what he means. He knows you're still often angry with your boss. He knows you're critical of your spouse. He knows you're unfaithful at your work. He knows all of that. And if I could yell it and my voice was not sort of hoarse this morning, I would yell at the top of my lungs You do not simply need to try harder. You need to trust in Jesus who can work through you. The final thing I want to tell you this morning is why this is good news. Maybe you already come to some of that conclusion in your own mind. I'm just going to give you two things. And they're meant to be summaries of things I've already said. You're called to trust in Jesus Jesus cannot trust you to do His work absent His power. And that is good news because it gives you freedom to really believe that you are not enough. I know it's common for people to say to each other, trying to encourage each other, hey, yo girl, you're good. You're enough. It's not true. I'm not enough. You're not enough. The calling of the Christian is not to be enough. It is to rest and rely upon Jesus. 
to transform you and work through you. If you look at your life and you've been dogged by the notion you just need to be more, why don't you get your life together? If you were only what you ought to be, everything would be settled. The verses of this passage give you permission and encouragement to think to yourself, I know I'm not enough. I'm not excusing my sin. I'm not saying I'm going to persist in sin. It is only to say I am not sufficient in myself I need Jesus. That has some very practical implications. You can admit your weaknesses, my friend. Jesus already knows them. And frankly, people around you know them as well as much as you're trying to fool them into believing otherwise. You can admit your weaknesses. You can stop relying on your own strength. If you feel like you're at the end of yourself, maybe our Lord has you at this point specifically to hear this truth. Jesus is sufficient, of your tru- is sufficient to bear your trust. He really is. The second thing I want to tell you is an implication. You're not enough, but Jesus is. He really is. He is great. He has the power to do what you cannot. He can take you even in your weakness in your frailty, in your struggling, and He can use you in powerful ways. And He's not going to wait until you have come to a point by your own power where you were everything you ever hoped, and then Jesus is going to reach down from heaven and say, now there's one who's upstanding and wonderful. I'll use him or her now. No, it is, according to Paul's words, in our weakness that the strength of Christ is magnified. Therefore, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, I will glory in my weakness. I will proclaim it widely. You know what counter that is to our human intuition? We hide those things. And I'm not saying be someone, as a popular sociologist had said, who spotlights your weakness, hoping it turns into pity and you become a perpetual victim and everyone feels bad for you. He's not saying that. He's simply saying to you, Jesus is great. And therefore, when you admit your weaknesses, you can also point to the power of God. And the final thing I want to say, and this is perhaps the most important, not only is Jesus enough, but Jesus is gracious enough to give himself to you. I know the way this works. We work on a bargain in our minds. I'll do this for you, God, and you can do this for me in return. No, the Bible says that part of the fact that Jesus does not trust us, He knows we are not capable by ourselves. It means He does not look at who we are naturally and wait for us to clean up. No, He comes to us in all of our need. And he gives himself to us simply because of his grace. Wherever you are, however you hear, what I'm hoping you'll be convinced of by this passage this morning is that you are called to trust in Jesus. And there's very good reason for that. In fact, I would say, if I can say it again, if you, if you determine, if you discover, if you seek out who Jesus is, 
It will become inevitable that you will find the need to believe. You can trust in Jesus. And graciously, Jesus is not dependent on having to rely on you. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I realize after this sermon, there can be some of us who may even be confused. Maybe some of that is the way in which I've presented this message, and if that is true, Father, I count in your spirit to make what may have been imperfect in presentation effective in the hearts of those who are here in this building and are listening over the live stream. But if that confusion arises not because of the method or the words of presentation, but it comes because our hearts rail against that truth, Lord, you've brought us to a point in which the truth of this passage is ready to be applied in the most beautiful way. That it's not simply that our minds struggle, but our hearts are in turmoil. We want so badly to be enough in ourselves that the notion that we need Jesus causes us tremendous upheaval. I pray, Lord, that by your power, you would change our hearts, our minds, our convictions, our notions, and we would leave here genuinely free to serve you without embarrassment or fear, without doubt or hesitation, and we would do it because we believe in the Jesus who's able to use us in spite of our weaknesses. We pray this in his powerful name, amen.